Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Catherine Harlow, Professor in Classics at the University of Reading. On today's episode, Catherine talks about one of her main areas of research, the life and reception of the pioneering 18th century art historian and archaeologist Johann Joachim Winkelmann. We talk about his life, his unfortunate early death, Catherine's project on Winkelmann's love letters and his status as a major figure in queer history, as well as giving his name to archaeology's premier football tournament, the Winkelmann Cup, which in case you're wondering, is being held next year on the 3rd to 5th of July in Oxford. Check out the Facebook group. Catherine also discusses her own journey growing up in the Roman town of Colchester, how about that Mithraeum, starting in classics at undergrad, but then moving on to modern history and then German philosophy for her PhD, and the benefits of being exposed to a range of ideas and approaches. Following on from that, we also chat about some of the questions we need to address regarding the relationship between classics and other subjects, and there's also discussion of the reception of Rome on later cultures and whether there is a disconnect between early career researchers and more established academics, particularly when it comes to things like social media. So, as always, thank you for joining me and on to the show. kind of came into the world of classics or your kind of role in classics is a bit odd or different (laughs) to the usual and you said that that only really makes sense that if you start from the beginning to explain it so I guess in your case usually we come around to people's journey towards the subject a bit later on but I guess in your case did you want to start off by explaining how you got into classics? Uh, (laughs) I don't uh, yeah I guess I can do that Um, I suppose I think in a way, what I do is recognisable as classics. I mean, I have a job in a classics department, but I'm a little bit strange in that I didn't do my PhD in classics and I also didn't do classics at school. Um, so although I did a classics undergraduate degree, in a way that was quite a small part of my overall training. So my school um, had a little bit of Latin um, in the first couple of years at my secondary school. And then the Latin teacher retired and they thought, oh, good, we don't need Latin anymore. So they actually abolished it. But when I got into my sixth form at school, I was very interested in history and literature and languages. I was doing modern languages and English literature and history A-level. And when it came to doing a degree, I wanted to do a degree which wasn't just history or just literature or just languages. And so that's why Classics Appeal, because it combined all of them. Um, But when I got to the end of the degree, I thought that was really, really interesting. But I want to sort of learn more and I want to learn different things. Uh, And so I moved into modern history. And then I ended up actually writing a degree uh, in 20th century German philosophy. And it was only at at the end of that, at the end of the PhD thesis, that I kind of saw the light. And I was like, I really miss Homer. I really miss the ancient world. I really miss using my Latin and Greek. I've been using my Latin a bit. So I kind of reconverted back to classics. Um, And that means that although um, at Reading, I normally teach uh, Greek literature and Greek and Latin language and a little bit of ancient philosophy. My my PhD wasn't in ancient philosophy, so that's not that's not quite what my graduate training was in either. Um, In my research, I actually spend a lot of time hanging out with modern linguists, intellectual historians, art historians. um, And a lot of my work is focused on the 18th to the 20th centuries. So I, I feel sometimes as if I kind of took this very kind of strange and roundabout route to end up 
where I was in the first place, if you like. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to anyone else, but it seems to have worked out for me. Surely, though, there must be a lot of benefits in terms of the way that you've gone about it, that you've exposed yourself to different ideas and different approaches. We talk a lot about being interdisciplinary nowadays, I think. And I guess in your case, that that really has been the case, that there must be a tremendous amount of different, uh, as I say, approaches and ideas that you've been exposed to. And that, that surely has got to be like a massive positive on your work. I hope so. Uh, I believe so as well, actually. And I find that some of the ideas that I was exposed to a long time ago kind of come back. Um, and I realise that they're sort of informing my work um, in ways that perhaps I wasn't so aware of. But then when I look back and I think about what I was learning during my master's in early modern history or the kind of approaches to critical theory I was trying out during my PhD, actually they are all sort of building together in some of the work I do on the history of classical scholarship. But yeah, it, it at the time, it didn't really feel like that. It felt like an intellectual exploration. It felt like I was trying to get certain kind of tools really for the kind of interdisciplinary analysis of cultures and societies, whether they were, you know, in the ancient world, whether they were in the Renaissance, whether it was the 18th century, which is where I hang out quite a lot now. Um, and also trying to understand how human beings have conceptualized human history and social change and cultural change. And I suppose that's the kind of thread through the work. That's what I was interested in, in my work in philosophy and in my work in the history of classical scholarship as well. Um, yeah, how the ways we think about the world and we think about history has changed. And I suppose that relates to also um, some of the stuff um, I've done on the reception of Thucydides as well, uh, because, of course, how we think about the past and how we write about the past uh, often involves relating to past historians, including ancient historians. And Thucydides was a really important example of that in the 19th century, especially. Mm, yeah. I'm going to move on in a bit to talk about, I suppose, what's been one of your major focuses of research, uh, Johan Winkelmann. But just on a very quick note, how long have you been at Reading for? I have been there for 12 years, almost exactly. I started in 2007. Oh, okay. I was an undergraduate there in 2007. In, uh, I was a joint degree in archaeology and ancient history. Oh, wow. um, so uh, I guess we wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have been in any classes that you would have taken because, as I say, half my classes were archaeology and then it was ancient history. So I was doing things like end of the Roman Empire and well, okay. certain core modules as well. But, so uh, which year were you in in 2007? Uh, 2007, I would have been, I started 2006. So, uh, yeah, 2006, 2007, first year, and then 2007 to 2008, uh, second year. Second year, so, right. Yeah, I don't yeah. think we came across each other. Um, Archaeology and Ancient History, it's a really big program at Reading, but it's it's owned, as we call it, by the archaeology department. So that would have meant that your yeah. tutor and so on would have been in archaeology um, and yeah, some students spend a lot more time hanging out in the classics department and some in the archaeology department and some do a bit of both. So um, yeah, it's a small world anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also as well, as you mentioned previously, uh, you're from Colchester as well. <laughs> I am. Um, do you have much familiarity with the, the Roman archaeology of Colchester at all? I, I just say this for purely, purely selfish reasons. As to someone plug, with plug the, uh, the right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I noticed the article in your uh, subject line of your email. Yeah, I mean, I, actually, um, yes and no, I would say, because uh, you can't really grow up in Colchester without having some awareness of the Roman archaeology. Um, obviously, uh, the Roman wall is quite a big uh, part of the... Um, town centre in Colchester and there's a very popular pub which is built into the Roman wall I don't know if you've ever uh, taken a beer there 
I don't, I don't know if I have. No, I don't think I have. I used to, uh, when I was younger, um, for a number of years in the summer, we the people that lived next door to us owned a caravan at Walton on the Nays. Oh, yeah. Um, so we used to go up to Walton on the Nays for like a week, like every summer for a number of years. And that always meant like for a day we went to Colchester. Right. And uh, I always remember going to Colchester Museum. Like Colchester Museum growing up was one of my favorite museums because it was the idea of having a museum in a Norman castle right. on top of a Roman temple. I really did yeah. love the idea of, and obviously, uh, well, growing up as much now, I, I was really into the, the Romans as well. So mm. yeah, it was a, uh, yeah, I, well, at that time I was too young to get drinking in the pub. So, <laughs> but uh, no, I, have, I don't think I have been in that pub at all. Next oh, time well. I go to Colchester, I'll have to uh, yeah, have a look for it. Yeah, it's just by the Balkan Gate. So it's next to one of the gates in the Roman wall. And as I say, it's called the Hole in the Wall, or at least it was last time I was in Colchester. Um, so yeah, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah, the, the castle is, of course, the other really big kind of experience if you grow up in Colchester. You can't escape being taken to the castle on school trips and taken down into the basement and being told it was a temple of Claudius. And, you know, there's even a primary school um, named after uh, Boudicca. It's called Queen Boudicca. Uh, and my great nieces and nephews who still live in Colchester go to that primary school too. Um, I didn't, um, I knew a little bit about the archaeology that was going on in Colchester. One of the teachers at my school um, was an excavation volunteer um, and sometimes it'd be in the local paper when new things were being found. But I didn't sort of connect with the archaeology that was going on in Colchester as I was growing up. In my sixth form, as I was walking to school, I'd actually walk past where the kind of Colchester archaeological unit was based. And I kind of look and I think I'd really like to get involved with them. And I even went and knocked on the door once or twice, but I, <laughs> I, I, no one ever answered it. Um, <laughs> and you have to understand that this was really in a world before the internet was what it was now. So it was actually quite hard to find out information about stuff that was going on. Um, you know, you could look in the phone book and find the phone number, but then you might phone and no one ever answered. So, yeah, archaeology could have been my route into thinking about classics, especially growing up in Colchester, but it, it wasn't actually. Um, it's probably only really um, since I've been in Reading and we've had, you know, a, a departmental collection and you know, have done more teaching and working with archaeological colleagues than I did during my um, undergraduate degree. Um, but I've really begun to get to grips, not just with people who were writing about material culture um, and classical art, but actually with some of the objects themselves. So that's been one of the great things about being at Reading, actually. It's, it's you know, it can change your teaching approach depending on where you are, what you've got to work with, and that can feed into your research too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, here at Kent, we're, we're a department that has classics, ancient history and archaeology under one roof. And there are a lot of benefits uh, to that. Again, like I said earlier, uh, interdisciplinary approaches, uh, I think, bear more tasty fruit. That's not a very good analogy, but there we go. Um, but any case, you know what I mean? Yeah. I <laughs> um, but yeah, also just on a side note, Colchester, definitely a myth, right? Not a church. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, as I say, if I went and knocked on the door of Colchester Archaeological Trust, I don't think anybody would answer now. You said, for very different yeah. reasons. <laughs> But yeah, as I mentioned earlier, um, a big focus of your work has been Johan uh, Winkelmann. Just for anybody that doesn't know uh, who Winkelmann is, uh, could you give us a couple of, uh, well, a brief intro to, to Winkelmann, who he actually is? Oh, I'm sure I could. I mean, you have to bear in mind that once I start talking about Winkelmann, it can be quite hard to get me to stop. So let me know if you're getting too much detail. Well, to talk about Winkelmann, I guess um, one place to start is the way that he's traditionally been talked about, which, you know, is in a very kind of 
hagiographic kind of praiseworthy way but people have called him in the past the father of art history and also the father of classical archaeology so he has this really kind of interesting status as uh well quite a forgotten ancestor i think of of classics and of some of the kind of sub-disciplines of classics and that's one of the things that interests me about him so he was um uh an 18th century scholar um, he was born in 1717 and he died in 1768. And he was he was from Germany. He was from um, Brandenburg um, and he was born into a poor family. Um, but he went to university he through charity and studied theology and then became a librarian. Um, but eventually um, he managed to move to Rome in the 1750s. Um, and he eventually got the position of the prefect of papal antiquities, which meant that he was basically in charge of um, issuing export licenses and inspecting all of the um, new objects and the new excavations that were going on in Rome. So it was quite an important job. You know, he would be the person who would essentially issue the 18th century equivalent of an export license um, for all the people who wanted to bring back, um, you know, classical statues and stick them in their country houses and things like that. And while he was there, he wrote a series of works um, about ancient objects, about vases, about sculpture, um, about the excavations that were going on at Pompeii and Herculaneum. And they really served to um, publicize classical art um, and ideas about Greek culture in Northern Europe. So this kind of classical kind of craze that took hold um, uh, and is expressed in the architecture and the interior decoration um, of, you know, a lot of country houses, civic buildings and so on in Northern and Western Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries owes a certain amount to Winkelmann. Um, but what I was really interested in in my earlier work um, on Winkelmann was a particular book he wrote um, called A History of the Art of Antiquity. Um, and this was, you know, quite a substantial book. But what interests me was that it was about um, ancient objects but it was also setting them in the context of a kind of cultural history. He talked about the rise and the decline of ancient Greece and tried to link the objects that were found and that he tried to date to uh, different periods um, on the basis of their style, on the basis of how they look visually, to what he was discovering from literary sources about the politics of the time, um, about whether there was a republican constitution or a monarchy, for example. Um, and about the opportunities for people to travel and to um, compete, uh, to swap ideas and to trade. And so, in fact, although it's called the history of the art of antiquity, what he was trying to do was to tell a kind of comprehensive cultural, political and social history of ancient Greece, um, which united the objects, united the sort of evidence of material culture with what we were getting from the literary sources. And that was a relatively new thing to do. And it seemed to me that that, in a way, was a really important model for the kind of ideal of classics as the interdisciplinary or the multidisciplinary study of the ancient world, which was kind of the ideal of classics that motivated me when I went to university and that we've inherited the idea that we want to um, study ancient cultures, not just by looking at, say, the literature, not just by looking at the politics, not just by looking at the archaeology, but we want to try and sort of connect all of this together into a kind of holistic view of ancient culture. So I was interested in the way Winkelmann, I think, was one of the people who was really influential in developing that view of classics. Um, nowadays, I think, classicists, we can think that 
essentially we're doing just what they were doing in the Renaissance or just what they were doing in antiquity, and particularly in the kind of more linguistic and literary disciplines. But things change, things change. And the the ways in which people were using ancient authors and thinking about the ancient world in the 17th century was not really the same as it was in the 19th and 20th century. So zoning in on Winkelmann was one way of thinking about sort of one chapter in that story of the uses that classics has been given um, in the modern world. Mm, yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, he's a he's a fascinating figure. Right? I, I initially came to him via, um, what's the book called? Uh, I don't know if you come across it. Is it God's Graves and Scholars? No, God's Graves and Scholars. I think that's, that, that's the book title. There's like a book written in the, I think it's the 50s or the 60s, okay. uh, which is just about the history of archaeology and Winkleman is essentially where it starts. Yeah, because he, uh, unfortunately, he didn't he didn't die that old, did he? He was actually murdered, wasn't he? He was uh, murdered at, is it a coaching inn or something? He um, was. He was murdered um, at, um, at an inn um, in Trieste in north well what's now um in northeast italy um it was part of the austrian territories then um and it's it's a kind of yeah it's a tragic i guess story it's a slightly strange story it's sort of one day i think i might write some kind of murder mystery novel about it because it's very clear who Hmm. killed winkelman but it's not entirely clear why he was killed and of course there's been a lot of speculation about that um, but he'd been in Rome. He, when he went to Rome, he'd initially thought that he would probably only be there for a couple of years. Um, but he'd stayed for longer than 10 years. And he decided to go back to Germany and see this book, The History of the Art of Antiquity, through a second edition in the press in Berlin. And they're all kind of audiences with Frederick the Great. And you know, he'd become very famous by then. There are all kinds of things being set up. And as he was setting off, apparently as he was crossing over the Alps, he had a kind of a kind of breakdown really and he decided that he couldn't go on any further he didn't actually want to go back to Germany Um, and he got as far as Austria Um, he had an audience with the Empress of Austria Maria Theresa and she gave him uh, some medals apparently Um, and he was on his way back he left his traveling companion and he turned back and he was interested and he was waiting for a boat uh, which would carry him south um, and the person who, the, the man who had the hotel room next to him um, in the inn, um, who was a kind of professional confidence stricture and a known criminal, befriended him. We're told that they used to have um, breakfast and dinner together um, in Winkleman's rooms. Uh, they were waiting about uh, a week for this boat. Um, and on the day that Winkleman was to leave, this man, um, uh, well, murdered him um, but rather brutally, I, w- I won't go into the details, but it was a pretty horrible death and it took him uh, several hours to die. Um, the man who murdered him didn't know who Vinkelman was. He was traveling incognito. And of course, there was a huge fuss um, when this happened. Um, and his murderer was caught and um, uh, gave a series of uh, confessions which were not entirely compatible with each other and, and was sentenced to death. Um, so that was the the story of of Winkleman's murder. He was 50 um, and he had a lot of work ahead of him, I think. Um, You know, there were many projects that he was working on um, and many things that he was writing about in letters to friends. Um, So obviously it was a a very kind of shocking end uh, to someone who really sort of died at the height of his fame and at the height of his intellectual power. Yeah. Um, As you say, it was a very sort of uh, tragic story, particularly, uh, I suppose, in many respects, a a tragic story at the, what we would 
as we mentioned earlier, referred to as the, the origins of archaeology in some respects, or at least as uh, we began to uh, archaeology as a discipline or the idea of approaching the material record. Uh, Winkelmann is the father, of, possibly, of, of that. Yeah, yeah, very sort of tragic way for it to, to begin. Well, I mean, it's fair to say, I think, that um, he wasn't really the father of archaeology in, in that sense, because people had, of course, been interested in the material record um, and in recovering and studying objects and even thinking about objects as a window onto culture before Winkelmann. Um, so it's a little bit unfair, I think, to the antiquarians who came before him to, to sort of allow him to continue having that title. But I think that kind of synthesis was very important and it was very much sort of taken up then, um, especially in, in Germany, um, where the kind of professionalization of academic roles such as archaeology, the first departments were being set up um, and universities with the kind of structure that we associate with universities now, which was sort of focused on um, research and creating new knowledge um, in fields like natural sciences and fields like archaeology. Um, were were being established. So it, it was a combination, I think, of him synthesizing um, in a new way various interests and various modes of scholarship that had gone before, and then, if you like, being picked up at a particular moment where university research was developing. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, because his, um, his reputation in Germany remains undimmed, if I'm right. A couple of years ago, it, it marked maybe this is bad maths. 400 years? It's 400 years since he was born. Since he was 300. Yeah. God, oh God. <laughs> That's pretty bad for an archaeologist slash ancient historian. Um, but in any case, um, yeah, his, uh, it was, there were various events, wasn't there, to mark, mark the anniversary of it that you were involved in? That's true. And there were events all over the place, actually. Um, um, many, many different places in Europe. For example, there was a big exhibition in Florence on Winkelmann and the Etruscans um, because he, he didn't only write about the Greeks and Romans. He wrote quite a lot about the Etruscans. Um, there was um, a big conference in Weimar that I spoke at, which was really about the ways in which um, artists, ethnographers, anthropologists have, have picked up on Winkelmann um, between the 18th century. And actually, there was some very contemporary work, like the work of um, Mark Quinn, the contemporary sculptor, um, there were um, events, I think, in Russia, in Poland, in Estonia. Um, uh, there was a big exhibition um, at the uh, Schwulers Museum, the, 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 the gay museum in, in Berlin, because Winkelmann's sexuality is another really sort of important part of his influence and his reception. Um, and we had some events in the UK as well, um, including an exhibition that my colleague, uh, Amy Smith, who's the curator of the Ewer Museum at Reading, um, and I worked on with uh, Christina Neagu, who's the keeper of special collections at Christchurch Library in Oxford, which is a kind of 18th century library. So we brought vases from the Ewer Museum um, together with books um, from Christchurch Library and things like gem casts and coins, the kind of objects through which Finkelman and people in his age studied antiquity and we had a really nice exhibition there that ran over last summer um, so it was fun doing all of those events um, and yeah the publications stemming from that kind of program of work are, are still sort of trickling out yeah no it's, it's very impressive that his his status as I say remains remains undimmed but not just in uh, Germany but in, in so many places as well it's uh, so as you could see as a, as a testament to the, the influence that he's had 
I mean, you mentioned there as well about his uh, or about his sexuality, and you, you've recently been looking into that as a particular aspect. Am I right? Or his uh, his his love letters, so to speak. Yeah, that's so. Um, I was very lucky. I um, I had a British Academy Mid Career Fellowship last year, which basically gave me a year to write up um, my book, um, and I got most of it done. I've got quite a large manuscript sitting on my computer, um, which needs a bit of tinkering with. Um, but yes, it was about Winkleman's love letters um, and the way in which they've been really, really important to understandings of Winkleman as a queer figure from history and the ways in which that has been powerful and the ways in which I think that's been uh, that's been kind of constraining or the things that I think some of those receptions have actually got, got wrong um, about Winkleman and about the function of his correspondence within his kind of self-fashioning, within the way he sought to portray himself in the kind of cultural scene of 18th century Europe. And so I've really enjoyed that. And part of what I've been trying to do in that work also is to bring um, some of these love letters into English for the first time, because m- unlike you know the major kind of scholarly works, Dinkelman's correspondence has not been translated very much. There are a couple of letters he wrote to men with whom he was in love um, that have become very famous, and the discussions, especially in English, are always about this this subset. But actually, if you look at all of his uh, letters in which he writes about eros and he writes about erotic experience it's a really important theme of his work of course because um he also writes quite erotically about about statues uh, or quite lovingly um about about various ancient statues you can actually see that there's i think much much more going on in this correspondence um and it's really interesting to see the way in which finkelman can present a kind of gay persona actually quite kind of publicly in this correspondence as a way of um showing his worldliness as a connoisseur. You know, he writes that uh, actually he'd be a very bad connoisseur if he were only alive to one kind of beauty. Um, So if we're going to be good connoisseurs, good appreciators of ancient art, we have to be alive not only to the beauty of women, but also to the beauty of men. Um, And he jokes also, he jokes about his sexuality and his connoisseurship in ways that are really kind of interesting. So I think... um, some people who've, oh, a lot of people who've responded to this correspondence have seen it as really important um, for queer history, but have suggested that because it was unpublished, because it was, as they put it, private, Finkelman could kind of be more honest about his desires and about his feelings in that correspondence. But what I'm trying to argue is that the correspondence actually was not private in that sense. It was quite widely circulated. It was widely shared. Um, An 18th century correspondence of sort of illustrious men was not private in this way. Once we understand it, therefore, as not being private, but actually as being sort of public or quasi-public, it becomes even queerer in a sense uh, and a a lot more interesting. Yeah, you say about it being more public at the time. I was wondering, in subsequent generations with Winkleman, then has that aspect of his life at times been kind of pushed to one side, depending on on the the period when people have been looking at him? As we we're saying, his his influence, particularly academically, has remained undimmed. But I, I have come across before discussions about him whereby people have observed the fact that you can read narratives about his life which seem to completely. Ignore that, and has that has that been a case in some respects that you think that his his sexuality has not been? I mean, obviously you've written a book on it, so obviously you feel like there is there is a lot to say on on the matter. But do you think overall over the years that that has been something that has been somewhat marginalised about his about him? 
It depends by whom, I suppose, is the question. I mean, the, the kind of people I studied in my first book on Winkleman, the kind of classicists in that kind of 19th century university context who were responding to Winkleman, didn't on the whole talk about his sexuality. But then generally, you know, when classical scholars are talking about previous scholars, they don't generally talk about their sexuality. I mean, you're sort of interested in the arguments that he makes about, you know, the style of Etruscan art or something like that. I think they all knew. But I think in terms of the kind of the kind of type of work that they were producing, the type of discourse on Winkleman they were generating, it wasn't so much that they were seeking to cover it up as just it wasn't particularly relevant. Mm. Um, and I suppose that was the view that I kind of took in my earlier work on Winkleman. I was aware that there was this other kind of realm of really important reception of him um, as, a, as a figure from queer history. But it didn't seem to me to be sort of hugely relevant to the way I was talking about him in relation to the disciplinization of classics. But then I sort of thought, well, actually, this is a really, really important strand of reception. Some scholars, there was an art historian called Carl Eusti, who in the 1860s um, wrote um, a biography of Winkelmann. And he was very open about uh, Winkelmann's love of men um, and about same-sex desire in Winkelmann's writings. Um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who uh, was really, really important to um, the reception of Winkelmann, you know, this great German poet who was absolutely sort of inspired and enamoured of Winkelmann, also wrote about uh, Winkelmann's love of men. And Walter Pater, who was um, an English aesthete who taught Oscar Wilde, um, but also gave lectures on archaeology and on Greek sculpture in Oxford University um, towards the end of the 19th century. He was really interested in Winkelmann and interested in Winkelmann's uh, love of men. Um, and Oscar Wilde himself, uh, in the picture of Dorian Gray, um, when Dorian is remembering the, the kind of pure love that Basil Hallward had for him, he says it was the kind of love that Shakespeare felt and Montaigne and uh, uh, Michelangelo and Winkelmann. So Winkelmann turns up absolutely there as part of this kind of canon of men who loved men. And at times that kind of touches upon um, the classical scholarship, the reception within classical scholarship, and at times it diverges from it. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that academic histories that treat of Winkelmann have attempted to cover it up. I, I wouldn't really say that. Um, I think also often people assume in some way that his death was somehow connected to his sexuality. Um, either that it, he died as part of a, a homophobic attack or that it was somehow some kind of, you know, erotic adventure that went wrong. Um, I can't see any evidence of that. Um, and I'm suspicious of the kind of stereotypes and the motivations that make people jump to that conclusion. Um, but we won't ever really know. Hmm. Just on a, on a side note at all, uh, have you ever heard of the Winkleman Cup? I have, Yes. <laughs> The football tournament. Yes. Well, hopefully uh, hopefully next year uh, we're going to send a team from Kent to, to partake in it. <laughs> but, uh, so you, better, you better explain what it is because I bet not all the listeners. Oh, it's <laughs> a, uh, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, the, it's a, a football tournament that takes place uh, every year where archaeologists, uh, I suppose also classes as well, though I've mainly heard about it through archaeological uh, grapevines. I've never actually been, uh, but we're hoping to go this year because it's, 
being held in Oxford. Uh, this football tournament, as I say, that's held every year. Previously, it's been held in different locations abroad, uh, but this year it's going to be in Oxford in the summer. So you get quite a lot of archaeologists from from commercial units, also from academic departments, uh, who who send teams along, uh, and everybody just. I mean, it's a football tournament, but it's not like a serious one. Everyone just kind of hangs out, probably as always with archaeologists. There's a fair bit of drinking involved as well. Yeah, I mean, people have said that actually. It's a it's quite a good way of just meeting lots of other people, um, studying the discipline. Obviously, different periods, different different avenues of research, different approaches. But people just kind of hang out, uh, and it's a good social event to to bring people together to in a relaxing way you could say or as relaxing as football can be at times to, to discuss uh to discuss what they're doing so uh yeah i, I think that's quite interesting because i don't know if there's any, any evidence of Winkleman ever being a football fan but it's in the spirit of uh in the spirit of uh combining as we we're saying interdisciplinary approaches i mean who knows what kind of projects might uh, have their seeds in the in the Winkleman Cup that might come to fruition further down the line. So uh, his spirit lives on in that regard as well. <laughs> I was actually just going to ask as well, just more broadly. I mean, we talked about Winkleman and we talked about his his legacy today, but obviously your your interests are also beyond Winkleman more broadly at the reception of uh, Greek uh, the Greek and Roman worlds, um, particularly in Germany at least before World War Two and. I was just wondering, I mean, it's very difficult, I know, to, to narrow that down and talk about it in, in a nutshell in a brief period. But, um, I mean, what are what are some of the major ways that uh, the Roman world was has influenced Germany in, say, like the 1800s? I mean, I suppose the obvious one is you have Kaisers, uh, like Caesars, but uh, are there other any notable kind of ways that Germany appropriates um, Roman or, or Greek uh, themes or imagery? It's a really good question. Um, and actually, it's you mentioned that you might be asking me this question. And I'm really glad you did, because I found myself thinking about it, it was, uh, quite a lot. It was quite a kind of provocative question for me in a good way. Um, uh, and partly because when you mentioned it, you mentioned Rome. And I thought, wow, Rome. How did Rome influence Germany? Because there's this kind of famous story about um, the importance of Greece for Germany. Um and the ways in which German nationalism in the 19th century was sort of founded on, in part, a, a cultural nationalism, founded on a kind of ideal of ancient Greece. So I was like, well, well Rome, you know, there, were, there was a famous book written in the early 20th century called The Tyranny of Greece over Germany. So it's very easy to talk about Hellenism and German culture. And then I, I started thinking about why Rome actually was so important as a mediator of classicism, European culture in general. And I mean, fundamentally, it's, it's because of Rome, right? It's because of the city of Rome, because the city of Rome is the kind of site through which modern travellers, um, writers, artists so often encounter the classical past. And all of the imagined classical past or all of the imagined ancient past they find in Rome, I think. Um, and sometimes you see this, don't you, in, in the kind of, if you look at kind of po popular culture and imaginations of, of various kinds of ancient civilizations and ancient worlds that often kind of look a little bit like Rome. Uh, Winkelmann never went to Greece. He talked about traveling to Greece, but he never went there. Um, he did go to the Bay of Naples. He did go to Paestum, but he never went to Sicily either. He, he never even, you know, got so far as to see Greek remains in Sicily. But he imagined Greece through what he was finding in Rome. He imagined Greek sculpture through Greco-Roman sculpture. 
And I was just thinking that Rome really gave lots and lots of different people an opportunity to have a kind of link with antiquity. I think because the city, the city continued, you know, the city had this, this ongoing life. Um, and so in periods when it was hard to get to Greece, um, people could kind of, people could go to Rome. Um, and you see all kinds of examples of that in 18th and 19th century literature. So, you know, Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, had, you know, this famous vision that he had on the Capitoline, um, uh, where he, you know, watched the uh, the friars uh, going about their business and kind of imagined the old priesthoods and sort of felt as if uh, Rome was present to him. And Sigmund Freud also, he uses Rome as a kind of metaphor of the mind, um, this sort of archaeology of the mind and of the unconscious. And he says, we have to imagine it's like Rome, but it's like a Rome where all of the different kind of layers of the city are somehow simultaneously kind of present and visible, or we just change our perspective slightly and we can observe a different layer. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I haven't really talked about Germany specifically, but I think there's something about Rome as providing this imagined kind of continuity or, or point of contact with the ancient world. Um, I guess because it was such an important city in antiquity, um, uh, you know, a place where different different people mingled and interacted. And it has actually played that role in the modern world, too. Um, that means that I don't I don't think we I don't think the 19th century Germans would have had their kind of fantasied ideal of Greece if they hadn't had Rome. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> Is it? I mean, it's very interesting for me, particularly just because I'm teaching an MA module next term uh, called "The Myth of Rome," which is all about oh. the reception of Rome. Uh, was it? There's the famous quote by is it Petrarch, which is uh, "What is history but the praise of Rome?" But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I read a book really. I can't remember who it's by because it was on the reading list for that module. I've uh, taken over and uh, oh, it's fascinating because it was literally all about that. And as you were saying about it, it talks in there about Sigmund Freud, uh, that that analogy of the layers of the mind and saying that, you know, the you can deem take that more broadly, just the way that Rome has been presented for hundreds of years. It's almost like archaeological stratigraphy of layer upon layer of new people coming along. If you go back to, to Livy, ever since Livy, or even earlier, but particularly since Livy, everybody that comes afterwards is adding a new layer of interpretation, a new layer of uh, mythology to what we think of as being Rome. You know, quite often it's the it's the same things that are being used, but used in, in different ways. And it's, it's fascinating how that changes over time and time and place. And I think we respond to the kind of tradition of the previous people who've traveled through the city as well. I mean, it's a, a really sort of silly example, but I um, uh, two years ago, I was in, was it two years ago? Maybe one year ago. At some point over the past two years, I was invited to go and give um, a lecture on Winkelmann's reception in Great Britain. And I was invited by the um, German Archaeological Institute and the Vatican Museums and the Goethe Museum in Rome, which is the house that Goethe lived in uh, when he when he was in Rome. Um, and my lecture was in the Goethe House, and they booked me a hotel on Via del Corso, right by the Goethe House. And when I was asking for directions to how to get there, the secretary of the Goethe Museum, she said to me, well, you know, you come out of a tube station and you cross the Piazza del Popolo like Goethe. 
and I sort of I got there and I popped out of the uh, of the station and I crossed the Piazza del Popolo and I had this kind of sense of myself walking in Goethe's footsteps you know through this you know amazing kind of rock square and down the Via del Corso and it was sort of yeah, somehow, I don't know, I would think like this, wouldn't I? Because I study the kind of history of, of, of the reception of Rome in part. But yeah, I sort of got what Freud was saying there, because I think all of those layerings, you go to Rome and you might have a particular interest in, you know, a certain a certain period in the city. But of course, you, you discover um, everything else. And the more you read and the more you understand why the cityscape has taken the form it has it's because it's it's been curated in line with all of those different archaeological and imaginative interests of people who've traveled there and people who've lived there since Mm, yeah just going back to what you were saying about walking in somebody's footsteps I mean it's just an interesting question to ask that I asked of people before that study figures from the past but just quickly going back to Winkelmann do you ever get a sense that you feel like you know him as a person I mean obviously as you've been saying you've looked into things like his love letters so a very kind of uh, I suppose intimate aspect of his life but um, do do you feel like I suppose a better way of putting it actually is that do you think you could you could hang out with Winkleman do you think you could go for a drink with him or have dinner with him or is it is is it quite difficult to imagine that or uh, or is he somebody that actually you think "Eh, probably personally I, I wouldn't get on with do you ever have though ever think about that at all? Yeah, there, so there was there was a moment really where I realised that Binkelman and I probably wouldn't get on, um, which was when I came across a passage in the history where he um, so he had thought that um, uh, climate was a really important determinant of the beauty of the art of the people, and this was a very widespread view in eighteenth century. Uh, Europe that you know the reason why Greek art was so great was because the Greeks lived in a very sort of temperate Mediterranean climate Um, and if you go to northern climates then um, it's very cold and everything is very kind of sluggish and brutish and people are ugly and if you go too close to the equator as well it's very kind of torrid and people get very sluggish because of that and this is kind of typical kind of um, sort of ethnic scientific pseudo-scientific kind of theory um, but when Winkleman went to Naples, he found the people of Naples not as beautiful as he had hoped, because, of course, it was sort of closer to Greece than Rome. And so he thought that he would find even more beautiful um, people there. And he says in um, a comment that he saw a lot of ugly African blood mingled with the people of Naples. And it makes you realise, and, you know, there are more passages like this in his work, um, that he was beholden to a particular conception of of beauty um, and actually of sort of cultural achievement, which excluded Africans and people who lived in equatorial zones um, from (sighs) intelligence and cultural achievement, I guess. And this is, of course, an ancestor of uh, 19th century racial theory. Um, I'm actually from an African background. Uh, I'm I'm from an African Caribbean background. My father's English. My mum's from Trinidad, um, and so this was a very encountering that in the text was, of course, a very direct. Gave me a very kind of direct sense that probably he wouldn't have given me the time of day. Maybe if he'd lived now, he would have had different views. I hope he would have done. Um, but I think those moments of alienation from your research subject are really important because um, when we study something, you know, we pour a lot of passion into it. We pour a lot of investment into it. And in a way, you do have to kind of slightly fall in love with your research subject in order to work with them for such a long time. 
Um, but I think it's also Im important to sort of own those moments of kind of alienation and distance as well. Um, and so I think of that in a way as the moment when I fell out of love with with Finkelman. Mm. I mean, talking about things and fortunately how uh, things have changed since his time to today. Um, but a, a question that I do often ask of people is uh, how, how do, well, do you have any thoughts about looking at the, the discipline of, of classics, uh, studying the ancient world, et cetera, or as I say, more widely with your own interdisciplinary kind of background? Um, do you see things, how, how do you see things hopefully developing in future? Like, do you have any ideas of how you, what, what things you'd like to see develop? Um, I know you're uh, on the steering committee of the Women's Classical Committee, Um I mean, there's obviously big changes that have occurred there and, and, and carrying on as well. Um, how do you see, hopefully, the, the discipline evolving as, as we move forward? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. Um, I, I get it. I realise that some of these questions are, are quite broad. Um, it's just, I suppose, in some respects, what, what are your hopes for the future of, of the discipline? Is there anything you'd like to see? Yeah. I think one of the things that attracted me back to classics after my PhD was that compared to philosophy where I was working, classics seemed diverse and capacious um, in terms of what, what could be included within the scope of classics. I don't necessarily mean, well, I certainly don't mean in terms of the kind of personnel, the people you tend to encounter when you're in a classics department, but the things that we are willing to compass as being kind of part of the discipline. I think if I'd been doing it the other way around, if I'd done my PhD in classics, and then try to get a job in an analytic philosophy department, I, I don't think that would have worked because there's a much kind of um, solid but narrower conception of what comes within the scope of that kind of philosophy. Um, and that has advantages. It means that everyone can talk to each other. You know, you go to almost any seminar and you'll have a handle on it. But I really liked that kind of diversity and expansiveness of classics. And actually, that's one of the things that attracted it, me to it you know, when I was at school, as, as I said, when we started talking, that it wasn't so much, I really want to study the Greeks, or I really want to study the Romans, but I want to do this thing, which means I can do history and literature and archaeology and philosophy, all sort of mixed up together. So I'd like classics to think about that and continue doing that. Um, I think to do that well, we need to relate to uh, and talk um very carefully and work with people in other disciplines, in other departments and other faculties. Um, and we need also not to make claims that we lie at the basis of everything, that classics is the kind of foundation of modern humanities knowledge or, or that kind of thing. And so what I would kind of like to see really is for classics to kind of make good on that side of it, which is kind of capacious and outward looking um, and interested in interdisciplinary work across the humanities, um, but to lose, if you like, some of that kind of legacy of claims of kind of its foundational character or its exceptionalism. Classics is great, right? But it's no more important, I would say, than German studies or anthropology or, I don't know, uh, modern history, you know. And I think I think sometimes because there are sort of classical threads through so many aspects of cultural and intellectual history and, and even political history, um, 
we still tend to hold on maybe even in our kind of you know marketing to students and stuff to this idea that we're teaching something like the foundations of western civilization or the foundations of european civilization and i think you know i think most classicists don't actually really believe that and their research doesn't reflect that but we fall into these old ways of um of talking um and i don't think they i don't think they do us any good actually i don't think they do us any good in terms of how people in the academy and other subjects think about us um, and in terms of how we want classics to kind of sit in society as well, I, I, I think that's actually quite negative. So I want I want classics to carry on doing all the things it's doing, actually. And I wouldn't I wouldn't dream of saying to my colleagues, I don't think you should be doing that. I should be doing this instead. But I think we need to we need to sort of decide which version of classics it is that we're that we're committed to in terms of how we sit in the world. Um, and I think there's two slightly different stories that go on about classics. And I think at the moment, classicists are kind of a bit guilty of, you know, being a bit kind of bait and switchy between those stories. So I think we could do with more reflection on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. As I was saying, I mean, actually, uh, even just this week, the first week of term, talking to students about classical archaeology and talking about Greece and Rome and saying to them, you know, the important thing, I think, from the beginning to realise is that these these civilizations don't uh, exist in a vacuum. Uh, you know, there's there's influence coming from China, sub-Saharan Africa, India, etc. as well. And um, and as we were sort of saying as well, like not only is there this kind of geographical geographical links that go on, but also chronological uh, levels to all of this as well. Like as things change over time, and as you say, there's nothing about. It's not a case that class studying uh, ancient Greece or ancient Rome is any better than studying the the 1800s everything has its own value because everything is everything in some ways or another is kind of interconnected if that makes sense or that ancient greece and ancient rome have you know studying them has any more value than studying ancient egypt or ancient anatolia or you know i'm not saying everyone has to be interested in modern receptions like like i am but uh the trouble is the trouble is so then we get into issues of expertise and staffing you know because um most departments aren't full of people who have expertise in ancient China, or if we even stick in stick to the ancient, you know, um, stick to the kind of Mediterranean region, uh, not necessarily ancient um, Turkey or uh, or even ancient Egypt. And then it starts to get sticky that people can sign up to this on paper, but then when it really becomes well, do we actually need to appoint? more people who work on those areas and not so many people who perhaps work on on Greece and Rome um that's where that's where the discussion gets gets more difficult I think um because of course people tend to study what is presented to them so if we're presenting to undergraduates a very sort of Greece and Rome focused version of classics that's what they're going to learn and that might be you know what quite a lot of them then go on and do PhDs in um and we're not we're not sort of creating that wider vision because people tend to teach stuff which is pretty similar to what they've learnt <laughs> or at least what they've trained in. And so at, at some point, one then has to make quite difficult decisions about how to expand one's teaching or how to expand one's staffing. And that can be quite hard to do mid-career as well. Um, and I think you know, those are kind of tricky conversations that we need to have as a as a discipline in the UK um, at the kind of subject level, but that perhaps also need to go on in individual departments. I know, you know, you've interviewed uh, Zina Kamash before, 
um, and she did a keynote at a, a track, wasn't it, this year, mm-hmm. um, uh, about uh, diversity and, and in part about the teaching of archaeology. And she did an analysis of the track papers and discovered that a lot of them were on uh, Roman Britain and Roman Italy, the Roman archaeology papers. And she put a proposal um, she said it on Twitter, but maybe, you know, you could have one year at track where no papers on uh, Roman Italy and, and Roman Britain were accepted. Um, and actually, some people thought that this would be quite unfair to all of the people who are working on Roman Italy and Roman Britain, because there would be a year when they weren't allowed to speak at track. Um, so that's an example of where when it sort of comes to questions of kind of resourcing and who gets given a platform and even something quite small, like just one year when people wouldn't be able to speak at track on that. People can be quite resistant to that. I'm not saying that I, uh, I mean, I think Zena's proposal is really an interesting one. I'm not an archaeologist. I've never been to track, so I, you know, I, I can't really comment in detail on it. But I think it's interesting to see the way in which people can start to have hesitations about even quite a kind of mild proposal like that when you actually see how that might play out in terms of what people are able to do. Um and so I think, you know, those are those are all some of the ways in which what sounds quite easy on paper is actually quite is actually quite a difficult process um, because of because of the history of the history of our disciplines. Um, and I'm you know, I'm someone who studied mainly literature and philosophy and studied mainly Greece and Rome. And, you know, I sit in a department with people who work on Coptic Egypt or Bronze Age Anatolia. And that's really exciting. Uh, I'm really glad to have them as my colleagues, but it makes me also very aware of the kind of limits of of my own focus, which is very much sort of Greece, Rome and Northern Europe. Hmm. I think, as you say, the, the most important thing, though, is, uh, is dialogue, really, isn't it? Uh, it's about people speaking to each other. And um, as you say, sometimes uh, it, we, we can have these difficulties in terms of, as you say, when like somebody puts something out there to try and make a change and, and, and people we'll push back on that for, for various reasons. But um, I think the most important thing, I guess, is that the, the conversation is, is, is ongoing. Um, and hopefully that, that, that leads to changes. I mean, we discussed with other people on the podcast previously as well, that some of these changes um, are things that can take just a very long time, right? <laughs> uh, take a very long time. They, they take a long time, but sorry, I, they take a long time, but they also require people to, to make decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to make decisions about, say, who you hire to that next lectureship in your department um, or what you organise your conference on. Um, so there, conversation is important, but there's a kind of another layer of, of actions. And, yeah, it will take a long time of, and it should take a long time because, in a way, it would be... Um, yeah, I, I, in a way, I feel the tug of both sides of that. I feel the tug of, I mean, I, I don't think having one year where you, I, I can't imagine that having one year where you couldn't present at track would be that much of a problem for a PhD student, for example, uh, if you can present all of the other years. Um, but um, I do, I, yeah, I, I think it's hard if you love a particular area and many people who work in, in classics and classical archaeology love um, those areas because let's face it it's not the obvious choice to spend your life doing this if um if if you you know are not feeling pretty imaginative most of us have a pretty kind of positive orientation to to to, to what we're doing to the subject um 
And then it can be hard to kind of try to adjust that once you've got used to thinking in a particular way. Um, and that can be quite unsettling. Um, and I think it's interesting. We, we seem to be at a point right now where people are sort of quite open to being unsettled, but can also get a bit defensive about it. And I suppose that's to be, that's to be expected. Um, but we do need to kind of sit with that discomfort and that feeling of being unsettled. Um, and then we actually need to do stuff as a result of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, I think, yeah, I think you say that there is, there's definitely merit to feeling unsettled. As you say, it's, uh, uh, as a, yeah, when it comes to dialogue, it can only go so far. There has to be uh, action implemented as well. Otherwise, it, yeah, it's going to take a long time, but it'll take even longer. And it's also, sorry, just sort of one more thing on that is it's quite contingent as well so you know I work on the 18th century context of classical scholarship a lot and sometimes this is called pre-disciplinary or the idea that the kind of the different disciplines in universities were just emerging um, and so for example um, it was not that uncommon in the 18th century to have say a chair in literature and then move on and have a chair in law or theology <laughs> and then move on and have a chair in medicine. And it sounds completely crazy to us that you could you could kind of be a professor who moved up the university and occupied all of these different chairs in turn. But that's what people did. Um, and um, another very interesting character in the 18th century was this guy, Johann David Michaelis, who was a professor of Oriental languages um, at Göttingen. Um, and uh, worked alongside a, a classical uh, professor um, called Christian Gottlob Heiner, with whom I'm very interested. But when Michaelis was not, you know, uh, teaching Semitic uh, and Oriental languages, he translated Clarissa, Samuel Richardson's massive epistolary novel, into German. And I was just thinking, it's sort of hard to imagine now having a professor of classics or a professor of Hebrew um, or of Arabic who also, you know, just does a massive work of contemporary literary translation and publishes that. Um, and I'm really interested in that kind of mindset that actually not all that long ago scholarship had where we would um, be interested in, in more than one area and perhaps not as specialised as we were. Um, and I don't know, it could, be, it could be kind of helpful for us in thinking about how to um, embrace that diverse notion of classics to think that actually it's not set in stone, this hiving off of, say, Greece and Rome from Egypt or, or from, you know, English literature. Um, you know, as, uh, uh, as recently as 250 years ago, they were doing it differently. I also don't want to do down the contemporary moment because, of course, there are all kinds of people who are uh, doing the kinds of studies which are to do with multilingualism and multiculturalism and so on. So um, even, even, even to say that there's a focus on Greece and Rome now, I think, is, is to, to do down a lot of what is going on um, in, in, in classic departments and in, and in departments that are devoted to the study of the ancient world. Mm. I mean, you talk about people being important figures across different subjects. Uh, just brings to my mind uh, the example of uh, R.G. Collingwood, uh, the famous Roman archaeologist in Britain. And um, yeah, if you read anything to do with Roman Britain from the first half of the, well, from sort of the mid 20th century, Collingwood's name always comes up. I mean, he was one of the compilers of 
Roman inscriptions of Britain, uh, early volumes. But um, he was also a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Oxford as well. And if you talk to people that do philosophy, they know who he is, but very rarely know he did archaeology. And a lot of people who do archaeology rarely know that he was a professor of philosophy as well. So it's interesting that, that, as you say, it wasn't too long ago that we had these people that crossed these these kind of... I don't want to say boundaries, but they crossed like different disciplines and did so very successful and made a, a significant impact on them. I first came across Collingwood as a philosopher, actually. You know, yeah. that, that was it, during my graduate work. That was my introduction to him. I think, though, the modern, our version of that ought to be working together and ought to be collaborating more. Mm. Um, and I, I often think about how we're not really very good at doing that in the humanities, um, in the sciences. They do it a lot more, of course. When I was doing my PhD, you know, the physicists and the mathematicians and the chemists who I knew, they wouldn't have dreamed of not working in groups. You know, that's what you do. You work in a research group. Um, and, you know, the, the, the advantage of specialization, I think, was we got much deeper and more detailed knowledge, but then we need to learn to talk to each other and, and work together. And it's a, lot, it's a lot more fun and it's a lot more interesting. Um, and I think often that the PhD degree is a really poor preparation for academic life. Because basically what we're telling graduate students to do is go off and do a really massive project all by themselves that has to be all their own work. Um, And that's actually quite a poor preparation for what some of the most interesting bits of doing research and also actually teaching, which also involves, you know, working with teams and working as part of a community. Um, a, a, A PhD is a massive piece of solo research. It's actually a pretty poor preparation for a lot of what we're doing in academic life I know not everyone who does a PhD does it because they want to be an academic and there is a a satisfaction in that but I would love to see um, a world in which we could think more creatively about how we might how we might what we might do with the PhD or how we might change the PhD to allow more collaboration I don't have any concrete proposals on that but I think it would be really helpful across the humanities yeah I think um it's incredibly rewarding when you can cooperate with others and work together with others. And yeah, I think as you say, there, there is sometimes a sense uh, in our discipline, particularly as you say, as a, as a research student, that uh, it can be quite isolating uh, in terms of you don't necessarily, you're not put in a situation where you, you're in, expected to collaborate. So sometimes the tendency is is not to do so. And there's all kind of, I mean, this is something we could go like down into as well, because there are obviously big questions about, as you're saying, the knock-on effect that has. And I do sometimes question the uh, the, the effect it has like in terms of the isolation of it, in terms of mental health and things like that as well. I think, I mean, I talk a lot on the podcast sometimes about the, the slightly uh, on-off relationship that I have with social media. But social media releases, I think in some respects, opened up doors in that regard that are quite positive of allowing people to talk to each other and share experiences and build up networks and, and find people to collaborate with that uh, perhaps they wouldn't have done in the past. I said, we could talk about this for a long time, but <laughs> we have to uh, draw it to a close now, though. But uh, yeah, I mean, just, just to kind of round off, do you, do you have anything at all that you wanted to essentially advertise at all? Any any events, publications, anything you've got uh, coming up in, in the future that you'd like to let people know about? Oh, gosh, I don't think so. Um, read my book on Winkleman's Love Letter <laughs> when it's eventually published. I haven't even sent it in to get a contract yet, but uh, I I, um, I hope it'll be published in 2021. Uh, is there anything else? 
come and visit Reading, come and see our <laughs> museum. Um, yeah, yeah, but no, but it's, I've enjoyed the conversation. Oh, that's been great. Um, also, as well, if people want to find you on social media. Yeah, I'm a sort of on-off tweeter. Um, I am on Twitter. I do tend to sort of let people know when I'm doing academic stuff, but I'm a bit scared of Twitter. Um, yeah. I think that's completely understandable nowadays. It's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. As I say, we could go into that as a whole other conversation about, as I say, my own kind of outlook sometimes on social media is not the most positive or sometimes uh, there's a lot to be said by keeping social media at kind of an arm's distance, I think. Mm-hmm. But I I do agree with you, actually. Um, One thing that working with WCC um, has done is it's meant that I've been working a lot with early career researchers, um, you know, which I did a bit anyway. But um, WCC is not only for early career researchers, but it acts as a focus of community, I think, for some early career researchers. Um, And it made me realize just how important Twitter is to them in creating a community Uh, and also in fact if you are in a position where you're not funded to attend conferences as you know those of us who are lucky enough to be in permanent jobs uh, often are then it's a way of keeping in touch and understanding what is going on in your broader research field and finding contacts finding out what's being talked about at conferences so it's given me a much more positive attitude towards twitter um but yeah i still i still find quite a lot that's distressing there um and depending on your personal characteristics as well it's a sad thing but depending on your personal identity characteristics whether it's gender or race and ethnicity you can be more of a target on twitter Mm. and nothing to do with what you're saying um and that's something that i'm very aware of too yeah yeah as i say uh yeah, it's um, yeah. As I say there's there's, there's big conversations that you can have about social media. The, the as you say, there are upsides. There are also a lot of downsides, and um, yeah, particularly as we've seen in in, in recent news as well, um, there are there are big questions being raised about what to do about that and how to deal with it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like people have said before. Social media is almost one of those things. It's a bit like uh, we've created this. It's it's like creating some like essentially it's a new technology and people still haven't actually worked out the best way to utilize it or the optimal way of utilizing it where you can get the most benefit out of it and also negate a lot of the uh, the negative elements. But um, again, that's one of those things I think is going to take uh, take time to happen. Um, yeah, there are issues around um, accountability. I think um, hmm. I mean not only of the big companies but of people. Uh, on Twitter and in a funny way again you know in the 18th century when uh, periodical culture was really taking off um, but a lot of reviews and things were published anonymously there were concerns around kind of accountability in in print culture then Um, and I think yeah I I think the other the other problematic thing about social media of course is that it it follows you into your home Mm. Um, and I think one of the big challenges to the mental health of graduate students, academics, people in our line of life is that we, we so much of it is in our mind and we take it with us. And then if the social media is also reaching into our homes as well, it can be hard to find um, a life outside of that. Mm. Um, and therefore, if you're being persecuted, there's no escape from that persecution. Um, and I think, you know, I, I've never been seriously trolled on on Twitter or anything like that, but I think that must be horrible to have it sort of stretch you know right into your into your into your 
private place and your private life. Um, it's something I worry about with my kids and social media as well. I mean, they're only five, so they're far too young to um, be be very involved. But uh, obviously, at some point, they'll be teenagers. And um, yeah, I just hope things have, have moved on a bit since then. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Well, yeah, as I say, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, as we say, there are a lot of benefits to it. It's just something that uh, I think the uh, nowadays things change so rapidly that people don't always know these things kind of come out they're given given birth to i don't know uh, they kind of appear in the world and yeah as you say particularly questions of accountability as well and uh yeah how how, how you get the most out of it with negating the the bad effects of it at the moment is something that i still don't think we've really grasped and sometimes i don't think we've had enough time to grasp because it's crazy to think that uh only 10 years ago um these kind of things didn't they existed but they'd only really just begun um, and you think of how how that's changed in the space of a decade is kind of it's crazy when you think about it. Also, actually, one thing that slightly bothers me about classics Twitter is um, I think there's a generation gap in the kind of community of classical scholars around Twitter use. You know, there are some people like Greg Wolf, you know, who are sort of uh, of a more senior level. Uh, sorry, Greg, for saying that, but who are quite active on Twitter, but. Actually, you know, Twitter, classics Twitter skews quite young. Um, and sometimes I worry that there's a kind of big conversation going on primarily on Twitter, which is one group of people who um, are sometimes, you know, those who are in more precarious positions and are um, feel excluded from some of the kind of traditional kind of career structures and power structures of academia. And then the people who are within those power structures and are more established are often completely oblivious to this uh, alternative conversation and community building uh, that's going on on Twitter. And they're having a conversation and they're not even aware of these people's concerns that are being voiced uh, so effectively on Twitter. And I slightly, I I worry about that kind of gap in communication uh, between these two kind of cultures and, and how that can be bridged. Um, it's something that came up at FIEC, actually, I felt, where, um, I mean, a, you know, a big conference like FIEC, you're bound to have, um, uh, you know, lots and lots of different conversations going on. But I felt like there were some really important conversations going on among early career researchers at the, at the conference about, about the discipline, but that were basically not really impinging at all on the, the, the sort of professors who were there from all over the world. Um, and it seemed like a really sort of missed opportunity uh, for for people to talk to each other, if even when they were all in the same place, you know, in the middle of London, they were they were having their separate conversations. So again, I don't have any solutions to that, but I think in my own work, even in my own work in WTC and in my institution, and um, over the next few years, when I'm thinking about what I might, the, the kind of discussions I might be trying to have you know, around classics as a subject on an international and a, a, a national level, I think I think we need to work on that. I think we need to work on making sure that we don't have these sort of two realms that are insulated from each other and increasingly uncomprehending of the other side's concerns. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, lots to take away and think about. Um, a pessimistic note on which to end. <laughs> no, I, I, I was, as I always say to people on this, I don't think... I don't think it's necessarily about being pessimistic. I just think it's uh, it, it's raising it's just raising important issues. As I say it's it's things to think about. And uh, I said earlier about dialogue. And if people aren't saying these things, then um, 
then people don't think about them. Um, I mean, just to just kind of link it back into the previous episode I recorded with with Owen um, Owen Humphreys. Uh, Owen on there talks about uh, mental health, and uh, you know when he was doing his PhD, and as we said on there, that the, the most important thing is that he's he's saying that stuff because otherwise people don't realize it's going on sometimes like sometimes you said it's, i think actually a good note to end on is what you said earlier that there are maybe maybe in that case the word unsettled is not what i'm looking for but you know that we are aware of things that need to, what's the what's the way best way of phrasing it I, I know i think it's just good if we're aware of that everything isn't plain sailing like everything's not fine and there's things that we need to do and there's things that we need to think about and people need to kind of raise that up because otherwise, if we don't, then it, it won't happen. So, no, I think, um, you know, everything's, uh, it, even if it sounds slightly pessimistic, I think it's still, it's making people think about things, which I think is important. So there you go. That's a positive spin on the end. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for putting a positive spin on my pessimism. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, no problem. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for the conversation. I'm going to go away and read your article about the butt road on church. <laughs> yeah. And then next time you're in Colchester, you can stop and look and think, oh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you go to that pub. <laughs> yes, I will do. I promise you that. <laughs> for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Cheers.